So we're going to begin as people still continue to filter in. We don't want to lose the people on the internet because they tend to wander away into Netflix if we wait too long. So we're going to move into the content of the talk this evening. So the theme of the evening will be this concept of emptiness, which is what um, uh, my book is about. The official publication date is tomorrow, so this is very new. This is actually the first kind of public small talk that I've given on the theme. I, I usually teach this in the context of a week-long retreat. So there's a lot to say about it, and we're going to just kind of hit the highlights this evening. Emptiness is a really central topic in all of Buddhism from the very early days of the Buddha himself, which goes back 2,500 years, all through the evolution into later Indian Buddhism, into Tibetan Buddhism and Zen. If you look for it on Amazon, you will find hundreds of titles on the topic in a Buddhist context. So there's, there's a lot to say about it, and it's been really central. So why is that? Why does it occupy such an important position in the whole history of this major world religion? Well, first of all, it's not a very appealing word, is it? I mean, you think about, you know, Hinduism has bliss and devotion. The Christians have love and charity. And the Buddhists have emptiness. Oh, my God. Why would anybody pay attention to this? But the fact is that these understandings throughout the centuries have brought practitioners, meditators, to the greatest depths of freedom and peace and happiness. And emptiness is the common doorway among all traditions that leads into this kind of deepest kind of understanding. So it's a very important concept, very uh, revered concept in the tradition. Uh, but it's not so widely understood, you know, especially in the West. You know, we're still learning about it. And it's not a simple topic. I was um, visiting with uh, this very esteemed Tibetan uh, lama named Mingyur Rinpoche. He's a young lama. He's just recently come back from a four-year retreat, which he spent wandering through the wilds of the Himalayas, way away from any buildings or people, and meditating in caves and being on his own for four years. He's a devoted follower of meditation, just like the ancient uh, Tibetan practitioners and lamas used to be. So he's a very, very impressive being. And I had the chance to meet with him on his first trip to California. I think it was about 1998, 97 or 98. And I thought, well, it'll be great to get to know him a little bit. And I wanted to show him some of the area. So Sally, my wife, and I drove him up to the top of Mount Tam. We thought, oh, great. You know, he'll enjoy the view and the nature. And as we were driving up, I tried to make a little conversation. So I said, how do you find the West? I think it was his first trip to California. And he said, square and clean. <laughs> End of conversation. Okay, I try another angle. Do you think Tibetans are happier than Westerners? Yes. <laughs> End of conversation. So we got up to the top of Mount Tam, and if you know it, there's a path around it. It takes about 25 minutes to walk around. It's only about six feet wide. And I thought, I better try a different angle. 
So I said, between these two schools of Tibetan Buddhism, I mentioned the Dzogchen school and the Madhyamaka school, what's the difference in their understanding? And then his eyes lit up. He said, ah, the first thing you have to understand is there are 18 different kinds of emptiness. And then he sat right down on the path and launched into a disquisition on the topic, the 18 different kinds of emptiness. So I'm not going to talk to you tonight about the 18 different kinds of emptiness, because that would take a long time. But it was a pointer to the fact that this is a broad topic, and we'll only kind of touch some of the basics this evening. But I hope it might uh, interest you and inspire you to, to want to learn more. So, what is meant by this term? The basic meaning of emptiness in the Buddhist context is that the world, which includes us, is not as solid or as substantial as we normally take it to be. And the understanding of that, when properly uh, integrated into our life, into our hearts, into our minds, leads to a lot of spaciousness and freedom. So, a couple of things to note from this. One is that there's a way in which we haven't yet quite understood the world or ourselves. So this pointing to emptiness, even with this, I would say, jarring and provocative title, is meant to be a wake-up call. It's, it's meant to provoke us to wonder, well, what's going on here? What is it we're not quite seeing? And what is it we could understand differently about ourselves and about the world? The second thing is that our tradition that we teach at Spirit Rock is a tradition called insight meditation. The Indian term for it is vipassana. And what vipassana means is to see things as they are. So the idea is that we haven't quite fully seen things the way they are. And because of that, we're caught up in unhappiness and suffering. So this is not just a philosophical exercise or an intellectual exercise. The purpose of looking into emptiness, the purpose of talking about it and reading about it is to free our hearts and minds so that we are on a path moving away from suffering and into greater happiness. So please remember that as the foundation of everything we're talking about tonight. It's a way to happiness. So because it's a way to happiness, the sort of common way that we hold emptiness in the West, which might be of like vacancy or total absence or nothingness or nihilism or despair, are not what the Buddha meant by the term. So I want to clear that at the very beginning. Where it's not about nothingness, it's not about going into a meditation where nothing happens as though that's the final result. Because any meditation you go into that's special in that way, you have to come out of and live your life again. But it's to change our understanding so that we relate to life in a freer way. Now, a lot of you probably know that the Buddha talked a lot about impermanence. Right? Everything changes. And the reason he talked a lot about impermanence is so that we wouldn't hold on so tightly to things. When we know things are changing, we tend to not clutch so tightly. We tend to relax, let go a little bit. 
So emptiness builds on impermanence, but takes it a little further. And I'll talk about that a little later. With impermanence, we see everything's changing, but when we see emptiness, we see it's changing so fast, there's nothing there to hold on to in the first place. But we'll get to that a little later. So emptiness doesn't mean that we're not supposed to have experiences, and it doesn't mean that the things of the world don't exist in some way. You know, Suzuki Roshi said, the bird we see and hear exists. We're not denying that. But what I mean by exists may not be the same as what you mean by exists. And so this is what we want to look into. How do things exist? How do we exist? What is it about our life that we haven't quite seen yet? So there are four main areas that um, I'll just touch on tonight. The book goes into more detail. One is emptiness of self. The other is emptiness of phenomena in the world. The next is this empty quality of awareness, which we pointed to in the meditation this evening. Could some of you connect with that? Could you feel that spacious quality through the meditation? Getting in touch with that emptiness is a way to hold things. And the fourth is compassion, because emptiness and compassion are closely related. So, I'll talk a little bit about emptiness of self first. Again, emptiness of self doesn't mean that we don't exist. But this is a quote from an Indian teacher named Nisargadatta Maharaj. And when he uses the word yoga, he means any spiritual teaching that leads to freedom. He said, the aim of all the yogas is the same, and it's to free you from the calamity of separate existence. So, this is something to reflect on. When we feel separated from the rest of the universe, we feel vulnerable. We feel at risk. We feel exposed. We feel distant. And we can feel afraid due to that. Seeing through this duality where we separate ourselves from the world lets us feel connected and not afraid any longer. So this is a big part of the motivation to understand the emptiness of self. Now the Buddha pointed to this really directly. He had a, an attendant named Ananda. It was his cousin and looked after him for the last 25 years of the Buddhist life. He was a very sweet man. He's kind of the sweetest man in the old Buddhist texts. So Ananda was always a little bit behind some of the other monks, so he always had lots of questions. So he came up to the Buddha and he said, well, Venerable One, you talk about the world being empty. What do you mean when you say that? And the Buddha said, the world is empty because it's empty of a self or what belongs to a self. So that's a pretty strong statement. Does it feel like your life is empty of a self? Probably not. So this, again, is kind of provocative. It's a provocative statement. But what it points to is that there's some misunderstanding in the way we hold the self. So let me ask you some, I want to ask you some simple questions and see if some of this misunderstanding might come through. I'll just ask you first, how old are you? And that's a pretty simple question, right? As long as you haven't forgotten. So, you know, you say, 
I'm 39 or whatever. So when you say, I'm 39, what's really being pointed to here? Is your mood 39 years old? Are your thoughts 39 years old? Is your hair 39 years old? (laughs) Your hair keeps growing, doesn't it? So it keeps changing. Your thoughts just come and go in this moment. What's 39 years old? It's the body, isn't it? So here when we say, I'm 39, we really mean, I'm the body, and it's 39 years old. So here we're the body. I am the body. Okay, let me ask you a different question. What color are your eyes? That's pretty simple. I'd say, my eyes are brown. Oh, but now, I'm not the body. I'm the owner of the body. It's not, I am the eyes. I I own the eyes. They're my eyes. So which are you really? Are you the body? Or are you something separate from it that owns it? Can you be both? How many selves are you in any given moment? Usually people who think that they're more than one self in a moment get medicated. (laughs) So we usually think we're just one self But look, are you the body or are you the owner of it? Okay, let's look at emotions. Sometimes we might say, I'm happy, or we'd say, I'm sad. So here, we take I to be the emotion, happy or sad. But then we can turn around and also talk about my joys and my sorrows. So again, are you the emotion or are you something separate that owns it? And these are not just, this is not just idle wordplay. We feel both these things inside. Sometimes when you're observing the body, you'll say, my knee hurts. And there's a real sense of ownership in that. At other times, you'll say, you know, I'm sick. And there's a suffering in that eye that is sick. So these are real feelings we have, but they're confused. Are you the body or the owner of it? Are you the emotion or the owner of it? Now here's another one. Don't you often feel like who you most truly are is an observer that's located inside the head and you're looking out at the world and it's the observer that's sort of seeing everything and hearing everything and feeling everything and you're located maybe two inches behind the eye and in between the ears. So this is a fifth way that we create the sense of I. So all these ways are what in Buddhism is called identification. We're creating an I by identifying it with some aspect of experience, the body or the owner, the emotion of the owner, or the sense of the observer. Can you be all those things? Can one entity be all those things? If you are your body, that means you're your liver and your toenail. If you are your emotions, that means your compassion and your anger. Is your liver the same thing as your compassion? Is there one self there? Okay, I toss all these out just to encourage you that the way we use I doesn't quite make sense. We've used language like this since we were able to speak. And by using it that way and not examining it, 
we've come to believe that the word I points to something that actually exists, but it doesn't. There's only this collection of parts, body, body parts, thoughts, emotions, feelings, consciousness. There's no entity. There's, you can't put your finger. I, I, I invite you to look. See if you can put your finger on what feels like the real you in this field of experience. So this is just to raise, I just want to raise a question in your minds so that you might be encouraged to look. And these kind of confusing ways we hold I can do that. So William James, the philosopher, said, when I search for myself, all I can find is a tickle at the back of my throat. (laughs) It can be like that. We've used I in a lot of different ways in, in our language. Ludwig Wittgenstein, the philosopher, said that the I is just a shadow cast by grammar. It's nothing, nothing really there. Collection of body, emotions, feelings, thoughts. So, it's not a problem to use this language as long as we understand what we mean. There's a way in which each of us is a different being. And we have qualities, we have characteristics of age and height and ethnicity and sexual orientation and all those things that are accurate. So we can describe ourselves in those ways. And that's all fine. That's what we call the conventional sense of I. But it doesn't point to something inside here that exists as a single entity. And that's where we get misled. We think that there's a core in here, an unchanging kind of core. And because of that, we think it goes on over time. And when we believe that, we're afraid of that continuity ending. It's the I that we worry about ending. And when we really believe there is an I, we, we get scared. We're scared of death. When we take the I out of the picture to a greater or a lesser or a total degree, the fear of death goes away. This is one of the things you'll find in spiritual writings all over. Okay, so if the self isn't real, what is? So there's this, I think, quite um, wonderful discourse that the Buddha gave about what really is here. And I want to read it. uh, Just, it's very brief. Listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of things. First of all, this is a bold statement, isn't it? Somebody's going to teach us the totality of things. Did Einstein ever say that? Marx ever say that? Did Freud ever say that? But here's the Buddha 2,500 years ago saying, I'm going to teach you the totality of things. What is the totality? It is simply the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. If anyone were to proclaim a totality beyond this, that person would be speaking of something outside their knowledge. So this is a very interesting and I think 
radical kind of statement. If Einstein was going to talk about totality, would he use this description? I don't think so. He would talk about space and time and the objects of mass like the sun and how they warp space and time. If Marx was going to talk about totality, would he talk about like this? I don't think so. He would talk about socioeconomic systems and classes and the struggle over, over wealth. So the Buddha is doing something really interesting when this is his definition of totality. What he's pointing to is our immediate experience. The eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and taste, the body and sensations, the mind and objects of mind. Objects of mind are basically thoughts and emotions. If you look at your direct experience, is there anything in your experience that the Buddha doesn't cover in this statement? Direct experience of a present moment. Sight, sound, smell, taste, sensations, thoughts, and feelings. That's pretty much it, isn't it? Heart, spirit. So I'd include that in mind. So this is a map of our inner experience. And the reason the Buddha is pointing it out is that this is where our suffering comes from. Most deeply, our suffering comes out of our own inner experiences. And therefore, this is where our freedom has to come from. Our own inner experience. So he's not approaching the world like an external, independent thing. He's inviting us to look at what's here, what's now. Okay. So how does a sense of self get created out of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, and feelings? So let me me ask you this. The word I comes in in our conversation a lot, right? We're talking with friends. We're thinking about our life. We notice the words I, me, my, and mine a lot. Do they ever come up on their own? Do you ever just sit there, you know, quietly in meditation and the thought comes up, I. Or the thought comes up, me. It doesn't usually happen like that, does it? Doesn't the word usually arise in relation to something else? I want to go to the movies. I'd like a piece of chocolate. My back hurts. I need to see a doctor. So the I doesn't arise just by itself, but it arises based on these objects of the senses. I want, I need, my knee, my body. This is significant. Because what it means is the I isn't, that sense of I isn't always there but it comes up again and again in relation to experience. And we claim experience. I see, I hear, I want, I'm afraid, I'm going. So if the I isn't intrinsic, it's not there all the time. Are there times when it's not there? 
When you're sitting really quietly in meditation and there are not demands from inside, is there a strong sense of I? Take a look and see. It's pretty light at those times, isn't it? Other times, if you get upset, somebody says something discourteous or a driver cuts you off on the freeway, ah, the eye comes up really strong. They shouldn't have done that to me. I'm really angry. I'm going to fight back. I'm going to report them. Then the eye springs up with a lot of life and energy. And is that a happy state? Not usually. When we get caught in a lot of resistance, anger, fear, hatred, or a lot of wanting, I got to have that new car. I got to have that raise. I need more money. That's also a struggle. So when the eye comes up strongly, take a look and see if there isn't some friction, some turmoil, some upset, and some suffering with that. It may be subtle. I'd like some ice cream. I can't have it right now. I'll have to wait till I get back to Fairfax and see if the scoop is still open. (laughs) That's subtle. Or it might be, oh, my son is really going through a hard period. You know, he lost his work. He may lose his house. I don't know if his job is going to be there for income to support his family. Then that is a burden. That's difficult. Suffering. So take a look. Sometimes the eye is really not making itself felt. And this is a doorway to freedom. I want to tell this story. At the time of the Buddha, there was a practitioner in the south of India. The Buddha lived and taught in the north of India, sort of around east of Delhi, and so between Delhi and Calcutta, basically. That's where he wandered for the 45 years that he was teaching. But his, his fame spread So there was this practitioner in the south of India. He was a really good meditator. He was a spiritual teacher. He had lots of students. He lived very simply. And he had a certain purity, a purity of heart and mind that a lot of people were drawn to. His name was Bahia. So he knew that he was developed, but he didn't quite know how far. So he was sitting one day and he was meditating and he wondered, am I fully enlightened? Well, that should have been a clue. Because if you're fully enlightened, you tend to know it. So the story went that one of these heavenly beings called Devas in the old text, read Bahia's mind, heard that question, am I enlightened or not? And came down and spoke to him. He said, Bahia, you're not enlightened. Sorry. He said, not only that, you're not even on the path to enlightenment. Oh, my. But that's, that was an honest response. And so Bahia said, do you know anyone who is enlightened? And the deva said, yes, up in the north of India, uh, in the town of Savati right now, there is an enlightened being, and he's teaching. He's offering teachings. He's alive, and he's fully enlightened. So Bahia immediately resolved to go there. So there weren't airplanes back then. There wasn't even United Airlines. So (laughs) he just set out on the road walking from the south of India to the north. It would have taken him weeks to get there. But his motivation was so strong and he had faith that the account was true. 
And he came upon the Buddha one morning while the Buddha was walking into town with his alms bowl. You know that monks are mendicants and have to ask, make themselves available for food to be offered to them. So the Buddha was walking through town with his alms bowl and Bahia found him. And he came up, are you the, uh, the Buddha, the one that I have heard about uh, teaching? And the Buddha said, yes. He said, please, venerable sir, teach me the Dharma. Teach me in brief because life is short. Who knows what will happen to you or who knows what will happen to me? Please teach me. And the Buddha said, this is not the time, Bahia. I'm, I'm walking the streets for my morning round for collecting breakfast. But Bahia entreated him again. He said, oh, please, sir, please give me the teachings in brief because life is short. Who knows what will happen to you or happen to me? The Buddha again declined. Bahia asked a third time, and that's the way it goes in the suttas. You ask three times, the Buddha said, okay. And this is the teaching that he gave him. Okay, Bahia, this is how you should train. In the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, let there be just the herd. In the sensed, let there be just the sensed. In the cognized, let there be just the cognized. Then there will be no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. Then you will be neither here, nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Bahia's mind was very ripe. He heard that teaching, that direct pointing, and he immediately awakened. Full enlightenment, on the spot. The Buddha later described him as the person who was foremost in quickness of learning of all the people he'd taught. Bahia got it like that. And then he expressed his gratitude for the teaching, wandered off, and that very day, that same afternoon, was walking through a meadow. There was a mother cow guarding her calf. The cow felt threatened, gored Bahia, and he died. So all the monks were concerned. This beautiful spiritual seeker had come, died that very day. But the Buddha said, don't worry, he understood before he died. He fully awakened and was released just on the basis of that short hearing. So this is a good teaching to contemplate. You never know when it might happen again. So basically what the Buddha said, if you don't make I and mine There's no suffering. There's no suffering. So, this is an instruction that we can take in practice. When we look in our experience and we see what's happening, maybe fear is arising. We could say, that's my fear or I'm afraid. Or we could just say, fear is arising. We could say, I'm sitting in meditation. There's a pain in this part of the body. We could say, my knee is killing me. Or we could just say, strong pain is arising. Play with it and see how it feels to to say what's happening without the I and my. It can make it more spacious, more equanimous. Through the process of meditation and examining this formation of I and kind of letting it come and go, we don't take it quite so seriously. We don't believe in it so strongly. And as the sense of self thins, more of that spacious relationship to life opens up. 
We don't hang on so tightly. And we have more of that open awareness that perhaps we touched in the meditation earlier. And then it leads onward. That, that peace and the ease of that continue to deepen. So that's just a kind of brief look at the emptiness of self. Then the next thing the Buddha pointed at was the things of the world. He said they're not as solid as you think they are. It feels like it, doesn't it? This table, these chairs, the floor, they all feel really solid. Knowing 20th century science and quantum physics, are they? What are they mostly made of? Space, right? The, the neutrons and protons in the center of an atom are just at the center. The electrons whiz around the outside, and most of that atom is space. So most of the matter that we see is actually space. So scientists only discovered this in the last hundred years, but the Buddha discovered this 2,500 years ago. So I want to read from a discourse. It's called A Discourse on a Lump of Foam. On one occasion, the Buddha was dwelling on the bank of the river Ganges, and he addressed a group of monks in this way. Monk, suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, monks, whatever matter there is, a person inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. What substance could there be in matter? So here the Buddha is reporting 2,500 years ago the lack of solidity in all matter, every matter on the face of the earth, which he realized from his direct meditation experience. because not through scientific instruments, it was from his first-hand experience. And this kind of um, exploration is available to us also. Matters like a lump of foam. How can that be? So one year I was teaching a retreat up the hill at the retreat center. And I was giving a talk in the evening in, in the hall up there. And sometime in the middle of the talk, there was this loud scream from outside. It sounded like a baby that was crying really loudly. And it was a little unsettling for everybody to hear, but it passed. And then some of the staff went out to see what had happened. And so I, I kept giving the talk. So after the talk, I went outside to see, to see what had happened. And the staff were gathered around the body of a deer. And the deer was lying on the ground with its neck at an unnatural angle. And the staff had checked and they found the deer was dead. And they said that when they first went out, they saw a couple of large dogs running away, running away from the deer. And this happens in Woodacre. There are lots of deer in the hills, and sometimes there are dogs who are loose and will attack and, and kill the deer. But I hadn't seen that happen at Spirit Rock before, so it was, kind of, it was kind of a shock. So we stood around 
made a circle around the deer and sent it thoughts of loving kindness or whatever its journey was going to be. Did that for a while and then went on with the rest of the evening's program. And the staff members, um, one of them called the Humane Society and said, we have the body of a deer. Uh, We don't want to just leave it out here. Uh, Could you come pick it up? Humane Society said, sure. Take it down near the entrance and we'll come by tomorrow and pick it up. So the deer was brought down actually just near the parking lot down here by this meditation hall. Humane Society never came. So over about the next two weeks as I was teaching the retreat, I just kind of stopped by and looked and see what was happening to the deer. And you probably know on this land we have raccoons, we have vultures, we have crows, we have ants, we have badgers, we have all kinds of scavengers. So every day there was just a little bit less of the deer there. Until at the end of about 10 days, all that was left were the hoofs, the bones, and the fur. Everything else had just been picked clean. So that solid deer that was there 10 days ago, just like a lump of foam, gone. This is one way we can see this matter. Our body is just like a lump of foam. It's another way. The Dalai Lama was giving teachings, this is some years ago, down at uh, Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View on the Heart Sutra. And it was over a a three-day period, so I went down with a number of friends. And it was a beautiful day in May, a few days in May. And if you've ever been to Shoreline, you know there are a lot of seats in a kind of uh, arc. And then there's a big grassy hill behind the seats. So you could sit on this big grassy hill, watch the Dalai Lama, and he was surrounded by monks and nuns from all the major traditions. So there were a lot of other Tibetan monks and nuns there in their bright red and yellow robes. Theravadan monks and nuns with the... um, dark brown of the forest tradition, the Korean Zen monks in gray, the Japanese Zen monks and nuns in black. The whole stage was filled with all the colors of of the monastic worlds of Buddhism. It was kind of like being at a Buddhist Woodstock, you know, it's just (laughs) really nice, nice feeling. And the Dalai Lama was sitting up on a, a big tall throne so that everybody could see him. So he was teaching from the Heart Sutra and The Heart Sutra says that there are uh, three ways that we suffer, three three reasons that we suffer. One is we suffer the pain of disagreeable or unpleasant experiences. So sometimes the body is just directly painful. Sometimes the emotions are directly painful, anger, wanting, fear, anxiety, worry. That's one way. This is called dukkha-dukkha. Dukkha means sufferings. This is like a double shot, like a double espresso. This is a double dukkha. The next way we suffer is that even when something pleasant comes along, it's going to change, right? The bowl of ice cream runs out. The love phase of the relationship changes. It's no longer a honeymoon. Um, The new car gets a dent when you leave it in the parking lot. So even the very pleasant things of life change at some point, and that's painful 
to us. That's called the pain of alternation. But he said, the underlying root cause, and he said, you need to understand this if you really want to help people. The underlying root cause is something called unsatisfactory formations. And what he said is that all the formations of the world are not really stable. It's not that things go along solidly for a while and then flip. He said they're not solid even for a moment. But whatever is arising is also changing moment by moment by moment. And there's no stability in our direct experience. You can get a sense of this if you look at your body sensations in a sitting and see if there's anything solid and unchanging anywhere throughout the body. Or if the sensations you experience are actually characterized by vibration, pulsation, flow of energy, alternation, change. Take a look and see. This is something you can experience directly. This is the unsatisfactoriness of changing formations. And the Dalai Lama said it happens moment after moment after moment. This is also why matter is like a lump of foam. There's nothing solid that we can rest on there. So, why do we reflect so much on impermanence? It's so that we don't hang on. One meditator said it really crisply, I think. They said, suffering is rope burn. (laughs) It means we're trying to hang on to something that's flowing through our hands, something that's changing. It could be our youth, it could be our health, it could be our relationship, it could be our job, it could be our money, it could be our children, it could be our parents. We try to hang on for some kind of security or happiness, but everything we're holding on to keeps changing. And as we hold on, it burns. So the reason we look at impermanence is so that we'll let go, because we know it's going to change. But emptiness takes us one step further. When we start to see clearly the way things really are in our experience, we see things aren't solid even for a moment. It's not that there's something solid that we can hang on to, but then it goes. There's nothing really there to grasp in the first place. So it's seeing this that lets us let go. And it's the letting go that steps us out of that rope burn of suffering. And even even more deeply, it's the letting go that opens our heart and mind to this spacious awareness that we touched in the meditation, that can lead to enlightenment. I'm sometimes reluctant to use that word, but it is the point of the Buddha's teachings. It is possible through this deep letting go for the heart to be liberated, for the heart to be awakened and for suffering to come to an end. And that only happens through a deep letting go. So this is why we look at the emptiness of self. It's why we look at the emptiness of phenomena. So we start to see we're empty in in two ways. There's no fixed core at the center that we can really call an I. That's one way we're empty. The other way we're empty is that all the elements of our experience, all these phenomena, are arising, passing, arising, passing, and insubstantial. 
So when we really deeply understand both of those, what we see is this world is a complex play of causes and conditions. Everything in this moment is going to condition the next. And that's going to condition the next. And that's going to condition the next. There's no controller in here who's making all this happen. And as we start to see this, we settle back and relax into the flow of the Dharma. Nature, you could call it. Nature is taking care of us. We don't have to control it. We learn a deep trust in the processes of nature, which means all the causes and conditions that unfold in their own way. Biological causes, physical causes, chemical causes, mental causes, emotional causes, karmic causes, social causes. They're all playing out in this complex interplay of life and we don't have to fix an eye in the center that tries to control it all. So this deep letting go brings a lot greater peace and ease in life, and it also opens the door to liberation, to awakening. I was a monk in Thailand um, for about a year, and one of the privileges of being in robes in Thailand is that you get to go to the morgue and watch autopsies. So this was fascinating to me. I was in my early 30s. I had never even stood next to a dead body. You know, in the West, we tend to put death somewhere over there. So I had never even stood next to a dead body. But in Thailand, I got to go to a morgue down in the center of Bangkok, and I was led into a room where there was the body of a young woman laid out on a, mental, a metal table who had drowned in one of the canals a day or two earlier. So that was shocking enough for me. But then we got to go into the... Uh, autopsy theater, which is a lot like an operating room. So there were seats in tiers around, around the main center of the room. And the young woman was wheeled in on that metal table. And then the coroner started to perform the autopsy. And we got to sit and watch, along with a bunch of medical students. There were maybe half a dozen monks and nuns there and maybe 25 or so medical students who are watching the autopsy. And if you've ever seen an autopsy or heard one described, what's happening is that the coroner takes out all the major organs and weighs them and inspects them to see what the cause of death was. So I had only just seen my first dead body, and then I watched it being taken apart, organ by organ by organ. And I'd been, I'd been sitting in retreat for about three weeks at that point. I was very quiet. I was very present. I was very open. So this was, this was a powerful experience for me. So after the autopsy and coroner finished and wheeled the woman away, I went out to catch a bus back to my monastery. So I was waiting on the edge of uh, the parade ground 
in downtown Bangkok waiting for the bus. And I was just watching all the life go by. You know, old woman wheeling a cart full of groceries, young couple walking across holding hands, a mother wheeling her baby in a stroller, the baby crying, young kids playing and kicking a ball around on the grass. And I was watching them all in the light of death. And it seemed to me that there wasn't much difference between the young woman I had just been standing next to and all the people I was watching in their lives on the parade ground. The difference was just a little bit. And it seemed to me that what the difference was was that in the people I could kind of see this brightness shining out through their eyes which was related to their aliveness. And with the woman who was dead, that brightness wasn't there anymore. And as I was riding back on the bus to my monastery, the phrase that came to my mind was, walking corpses. We're all just walking corpses. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old. I just had the same perception. And I saw that what I meant by that is that the difference, the way it seemed to me, was the difference between the woman who was dead and all those people who were alive is that the live people had this bright awareness that was still going, and the body didn't. So it seemed to me that what we are most fundamentally is this body and this bright awareness. The body is just in the present moment. That bright awareness is just in the present moment. But we have this capacity for memory. And what memory does is it stores up a bunch of the past and plants it in the brain as though it's real. But the past isn't there anymore. And then we project those memories into the future as though that's real out there somewhere. But that's just an imagination. What's real is the consciousness in the present and the body in the present and all the rest is a concept. So what what is it like if you feel yourself just to be this consciousness that's right here and now and this body that's right here and now and you let go of the past and you let go of the future? Does that feel light? That's the lightness of awakeness and freedom and emptiness. It's not believing that we are our past or we are our future. We're just right here, right now, and it's really simple. Isn't the the moment really simple? You're comfortable, you're safe, you're in good company. This is the doorway to freedom. This is emptiness. So when we see in this way, emptiness is not something cold at all. It's not cold, distant, and remote. We realize that we all have this present moment awakeness, but we get caught believing in past and future, believing we're somebody, worrying about health, worrying about aging, worrying about money, worrying about death. 
And so this opens up this feeling of sympathy and compassion because we're, we're all in this same boat, you know. Everybody's facing these same life situations. No one is exempt from them. And so we realize there's nothing fixed in here. There's nothing solid in our experience, but we still have to deal with life. So as the space opens up in our own heart, we feel for the situation that we're all in. We feel compassion for ourselves. We feel compassion for others. Emptiness is not a cold thing that cuts us off from the world or from ourselves. It opens up the natural warmth of the heart because we're not so burdened. It's light living in this way. And then we understand this quotation that is attributed to Kuan Yin. I think we have a Kuan Yin on the altar, the female representation of the, the embodiment of compassion. So there's a quotation that's attributed to Kuan Yin. She's the Bodhisattva of compassion because she listens to the cries of joy and the cries of sorrow that are in the world. At the same time, she really understands emptiness. She understands the simplicity of this moment-to-moment experience. And so the quotation says, the winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? Our experience is always empty, always open, always basically free. There's a safety and a refuge, a freedom and an ease in that. This is the possibility of emptiness. Okay, so um, that's really all I wanted to uh, share this evening. And we have a few minutes for a couple of questions, comments, if there are any. And I think a staff person has a microphone that they will bring so that everyone can hear. If you would raise your hand again, please, and the mic is on its way. Two mics are on their way. (laughs) Stereo. (laughs) Um, It seems clear about the individual for themselves. Um, What seems unclear about the I, the me, the we, is when you're in a communication to someone else. Um, Could you explain where does a a common reference come so that people can understand? Do you, are you understanding what I'm trying to say? Sure. Whoops, the I. (laughs) (laughs) So these words, you know, I and my, you and we, they do have clear meanings in a social setting. So we use them kind of as we always have. Like, you know, it's really good that I know where my car is out there, and you know where your car is, and you know which house is yours that you go home and I go to my house. But these are what I'd call social conventions. There's not an absolute 
ownership. You know, this book doesn't know that it's mine. Um, the car doesn't know that it's, but it's a social convention that we've agreed on. And it makes a lot of ease in living in a community. And similarly, if I say to you, um, I'm feeling really happy today, it just identifies where the experience is taking place as opposed to if I said she's feeling really happy today. So we're designating locations with these words and they're necessary for easy communication. But when I'm in my own experience and I'm st I've stepped outside the social realm, I don't need to use the word I and my. I just say fear is arising or car. But when communicating with each other, we really need to use them, and we use them in the conventional way, but we're not tricked by them anymore. We don't believe that the words are pointing to something unchanging that's in here, but they're still really useful. And because of that, we can talk about ourselves as having an identity that is um, you know, using conventional terms. You know, we're old or young or we're tall or short or we're gay or straight or we're black or white or whatever. Those still all make sense, you know, referring to this whole package. But we realize that the whole package of mind and body is always changing. But there's a kind of consistency to the package. Okay, thanks. Up front, if there's a mic still handy. Um, I just had some trouble understanding uh, the idea of the absence of I. I've always sort of pseudoscientifically thought of I as being the point of origin of all sensation, and it seems like that could never disappear, regardless of whether or not you feel like you are a part of the surrounding land or atmosphere or energies around you. Um, it seems like that idea of I-ness being where all of the sensations around you or being where, being just the point of origin of all touch that you feel, everything you hear, everything you taste, smell, think. Um, I just have trouble understanding how that can ever be not present. So there is a, there is a kind of um, geographic, or you could say a spatial centralness to the experience, and I don't think that that goes away. But we don't have to claim anything about it. And it's a taking away the claiming of this is me or this is mine that creates all the space. And you also realize, well, within this spacious awareness, things are always changing. And they're always changing within this mind-body stream, and they're always changing in that mind-body stream. We're located in kind of different places, so there's a, a geographical separation. And we acknowledge that, and that's real. But there's nothing fixed within either, either of those streams. Yeah. So, so kind of like you were saying before, it's more this is where sensation is occurring as opposed to I am where yes. sensation is occurring and yeah. sensation is occurring to me. Exactly. Okay. Sensations are occurring here. Wherever here is. There's a question in the back. Here, you know, is not a very precise term. When we say here, do we mean spirit rock? Do we mean Woodacre? Do we mean the USA? Okay, please. Hi. Um, could you elaborate more on the 
suffering, being part of the rope. Suffering being part of? The um, rope burn. I didn't get the last. Suffering being... Rope burn? Grass, yeah, rope burn, yeah. So in the, you know, in the Buddha's teaching, we suffer because we want things to be a certain way. And usually that wanting things to be a certain way is because we've known pleasant experience in the past and we want it to always be like that. Or we've known unpleasant experience in the past and we don't want it to be like that. So there's a, a holding on to an idea of the way things ought to be happening in our life. You know, a simple example. Um, I'm sitting in meditation and there's a pain in my knee. Well, I remember that there was a time when I sat comfortably and I want it to be like that. So I'm holding on to that as a reference point. And because of that, this experience of pain in my knee is undesirable, unwanted, and I suffer from it. It may just be a little suffering, but it's a suffering. Or in the bigger suffering, we've been happily married for 10 years. We find out our partner has been unfaithful. And it's very painful to, to realize that the relationship of trust and uh, honesty that we thought we had is not there anymore. So that really feels like, oh, the center of our life is being ripped away from our heart. That's a more extreme example. But it's when we lose something really precious, we feel that suffering, or when something really unpleasant comes upon us and we lose the ease or the health or the youth that we had before, and it's not easy to let go of that. Okay. We are just at uh, 9.15 now, and so I wanted to be sure everybody can get back to their other commitments, so we will uh, end here. And just a couple of words before everybody leaves. Um, Thank you all for coming. If this is of interest and you'd like to explore further, I'm doing a day long on on Saturday in this same hall on this topic, and uh, it'd be a pleasure to see you all. Otherwise, I thank you for coming tonight. Thanks for visiting Spirit Rock, and hope we meet again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.